Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Matt Cutts. Matt is the administrator of the U.S. Digital Service, and previously, he was the head of the web spam team at Google. You can find him on Twitter at Matt Cutts. All right, here we go. Matt Cutts, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. No problem. So for those who don't know you, you are the administrator of the U.S. Digital Service, and previously you were at Google, where you were the head of the web spam team and also the 71st employee <laughs> yeah. in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. What was Google like in 2000? Oh, man. So we had three people start that day, and that was a new record at the time. Now, you know, you've got like yeah. hundreds of people starting each week. Uh, but the crazy thing is it was a startup back then, you know? So late nights, working crazy hours. I remember one of the first projects I worked on was Safe Search. Okay. And so at one point at like 2 a.m., I got something working and I was really happy. So I was going to head home and I was like speeding because I was like super excited. I got this thing working, got a speeding ticket. Um, and so I, I literally remember like working every weekend until at some point people were like, oh, three or four years in, we're like, we don't work on weekends anymore. And I was like, oh, now the culture's changed a little bit. But it's super weird to be like, the people who were just folks, you know, Amit or Lucas or whoever, then eventually became entire departments, you know, sales departments and people who dealt with logs and privacy. And but it back then it was just like a small group of people. It's crazy. How do you because I know the the story with PB creating Gmail is mm-hmm. just like a one guy goof. <laughs> yeah. Like, Let's see if we can do this. Right. How did projects get delegated and chosen? How How did it all work? Well, it was funny because. Uh, I start out, I, I did safe search and then there was this ski, uh, offsite, okay. you know, like everybody fit on one bus, one fifty wow. person bus okay. back then. Uh, so that was a great introduction to the company and I was skiing, uh, and on a lift with a manager and she was like, Hey Matt, you like doing front end programming? And I was like, sure. I like front end <laughs> programming. And then like, boom, guess what? You're in the ads group now. <laughs> I'm like, wait, I don't want to be in the ads group. But there were only like five people and they needed oh to help. God. And so I was like trying to help out. We did like geolocation and it took like a year to claw my way back towards, wow. you know, ranking. So, it, you know, it was very informal. It was very much like, here's a problem. We got to go swarm and tackle it. Um, even writing Safe Search was because there was a partner that wanted it. You know, and so we're like, okay, can we build this in time? Let's wow. see if we can make it. it so it, on like a self-hosted version or like mm-hmm. a white. Yeah. Okay. It's, to what degree did you feel like the success of Google was certain at the time? <laughs> Completely uncertain. Okay. I mean, if you go back, I think Google had raised like $25 million uh, from, you know, like Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia or whatever. Yeah. And so as I recall, the dot-com crash happened like March of 2000, winter apocalypse. Everybody was like, this is going to be terrible. And, uh, and so it wasn't at all clear that we were going to be able to make it. I remember when Alta Vista, I was worried they were going to crush us. Oh, man. Because, like, you know, you got a certain <laughs> number of ranking signals. And if yeah. they had twigged and, and caught on fast enough, they even, like, copied our appearance. They had a little front end that you could set it where you could be, like, I think they called it, like, goofy. Okay. It was, like, rainbow colored. So yep. it looked a little like a little Google. Googly. But they didn't get the quality right. So we we were okay from that point of view, but it was it was nonstop for several years. I mean, trying to make sure that 
in those early days, Microsoft didn't realize how much money was coming from search engines. Right. Uh, but also AdWords and, and later AdSense. Like, but can you walk through that product development? Because yeah. I'm so curious. Yeah, like, yeah. What, what did you start? You're like, think, oh, this might not be a thing. And then uh-huh. like a certain type of ad takes off or yeah. you tried something and failed. So it was it was wild because back then people were like, do you have salespeople sell stuff, which was the default, you yep. know, so you go to the, the most profitable folks uh, and do you sell by CPM cost per thousand or do you sell by cost per click? Mm-hmm. There was this thing called overture where people could bid on things. Um, and so there was a whole bunch of shifts in strategy where people are like, let's figure out how to do this. Um, so at one point I was in the ads group and they said, we're going to do this prototype of self-service advertising. So we're going to make some little ads on the right hand side. And, uh, oh man, I forgot to turn off caching when I ran that experiment <laughs> and I nearly melted Google at that point, which was not cool. Cause they were just dynamically serving them constantly to everyone. Well, no, no, this was the, this was super, super prototype. So it was like the ads were like pool tables and PlayStation. And I forget what the third one was for any search for what? No, but in order to show enough, you had to have it in the experiment for like 30% of people because okay. not that many people were searching for PlayStations or whatever. Uh, and so I turned off caching for 30% of Google. Which radically, like, <laughs> like racks were melting down and yeah. all this sort of stuff. So I remember we looked at the click-through rate and, uh, and it was really low, um, hmm. because we just picked some copy. You know, we hadn't done any A-B testing. We're like, would you like to buy a PlayStation now? Kind of thing. And as I recall, Marissa was like, this is not good for the user experience. And Larry Page was like, well, maybe, but I could imagine click-through going up. So let's, let's explore this a little bit more. That surprises me because I've heard stories about banner ads, for example, in mm-hmm. the beginning mm-hmm. having crazy click-through rate. So why was that not working? Uh, you know, the only thing I can think of is the copy probably sucked. It was off on the right-hand side. People probably didn't know uh-huh. what exactly is this thing over here. And it was kind of fun because it were like multicolor ads back then. Were you like throwing in pictures and trying to make No that? pictures. Okay. But I remember like a one pixel darker color boundary. Like they were really pretty ads, but yeah. I think people just didn't even know to click on them. Uh, and it turns out having people willing to put in the A-B testing makes a huge difference. And the first self-service ad we got for AdWords was I think for a lobster company. Like you could buy lobsters in Maine. Uh, and, and have them like, you know, packed in dry ice and shipped to you. And that was the point when we were like, oh, there's this whole long tail of people who want to reach people who are looking for the things that they're looking, you know, selling pre-social media. All Yeah, totally. Did you do like a user study? Did you like call the person in Maine up? And like, what made you choose to do this? <laughs> I hope that they got in touch with that You'd person. You'd figure it'd be like a pizza shop in San Jose. Right. Like not a lot. Yeah. Right. I really hope they got in touch and were like, did you know you were the very first one? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember I went to a search conference a few years back and somebody was like, hey, I was one of the first AdWords advertisers. And I was like, oh, cool. What did you do? And he was like... It wasn't family safe. And I was like, oh, (laughs) interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And he was like talking about how he tweaked all the keywords and did all the testing. But people were willing to put in that work because you could get, you know, you could find these little cavities where nobody else was searching. And like if you found the right word, you could actually get great click through rates and a great response. I think you see it today with YouTube, right? Yeah. Like people realize like, oh, there's nothing for this kind of flat earth search. Therefore, they just (laughs) like fill it up. Yeah. So we used to call that... um, the evil unicorn problem. 
Or at least I used to call it that. Okay. Because people come to Google and they'll search for something like flat earth, right? And there's no good answers because you're looking for the most reputable, useful results to give people. <laughs> and like there's not that many legitimate folks who are like, right. oh, yeah, the earth's totally flat. So, but you still have to show 10 results unless you like change the interface to say you're in a, in an untrusted area, which we, we experimented with that later. Um, and, and so like the folks who realize there are people searching for evil unicorns, you know, everybody thinking unicorns are perfect, nice, whatever, but you can still search for evil unicorn and then you got to have 10 results for evil unicorn. And so it's sort of this lacuna like a lack of information and so when there's not high quality information you still end up showing something Mm -hmm. and so the folks who realize they can make flat earth content or whatever we're filling in a gap and so at that point you're just like hey listen we're a common carrier to a certain extent whatever comes through comes through it gets really hard with common carrier and publisher and 230 and all that sort of stuff so there were there were literally people who sued us because we took action on them because we considered them spammers yeah. like they were literally selling page rank like i will link to you and the amount of money is based on the amount of page rank i have uh and then we took action and they were like that's unfair and we're like like how yeah. like we rank the search results and so there was one called uh search king and okay. the result of that lawsuit was that search results are protected by the first amendment so that was that was a useful hmm. court precedent and then there was one called Kinderstart where they were saying page rank is an algorithm and so you have no ability or right to like zero out somebody's page rank or to take action but if you follow that to the natural logical extreme like then you'd never be able to like tweak or adjust the search engine or like manually say oh i haven't you know this one spam but we haven't caught it yet our Mm -hmm. algorithms aren't ready yet so we're not allowed to take action on it and so we won that lawsuit as well Hmm. but it was super interesting to to see how people thought about search whether it was like a newspaper or whether it was like a card catalog at a library or like a magazine and you know people just want high quality relevant results they don't want to delve too deeply into you know i don't want to they we tried giving people knobs yeah you know where you could you know tweak how reputable something would be and nobody 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 ever ever used it no they They just click on the first five or whatever typically yeah so where do you fall now with things like youtube where you just go deep 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 and you you might not even know you're in it so i i think one good thing about google you know having left there several years ago now is that the people really care about trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And so trying to return high quality relevant results. And and the same thing for YouTube. It's a different silo within Google, but a lot of the DNA is the same. And so when you see, you know, searches for something that doesn't actually exist and so spammers are ranking for it on YouTube, like yeah. YouTube wants to take care of that. Um, and so I think some of the recent stuff where people are like getting getting down a rabbit hole I'm sure that there are engineers thinking very hard about how do we solve this problem and make it work better. Yeah. Okay. I could talk to you about Google back in the day for a very (laughs) long time. Uh, I want to be careful. But I I was curious. So being early on the web spam team and then running web spam, you've read these stories about content moderators like Mm -hmm. overseas looking at, you know, horrible stuff. Yeah. Were you exposed to that? Yeah. I mean... Yes, more so with safe search where you were trying to detect, yeah. you know, pornography and, and non-family safe things. And for a while, so Larry and Sergey shared an office for a long time because they were on the road and, the, you know, we were tight on real estate. Yeah, yeah. And so for a long time, I had the cubicle right outside of Larry and Sergey's <laughs> office. And this was right when I was working on safe search. And so I was like oh, try, man. trying to see if I could find 
stuff that had slipped through. And if I did, I would, you know, try to tweak word weights and stuff like that. And so at some point, Colpreet, who was our first lawyer at Google, came by and he was like, hey, um, <clears throat> hey, Matt, we know you have to like look for pornography. It's part of your job. It's a vital thing that you do. But like, oh, it kind of weirds out when visitors are coming to visit Larry and Sergey. And there yeah. is in your line of sight. It looks kind of like you're looking at porn. <laughs> and we know you're doing it for work. But could you put like a whiteboard up to block oh, the? And I was like, okay, I can, I can do that. So yeah, I did, I did end up seeing a lot of stuff. But, um, but it was a little bit of a different time. Like Safe Search was just towards pornography, and spam was more like buy cheap Viagra and loan consolidation stuff. And so it wasn't nearly as bad as a lot of the content moderators um, had to deal with. There, there is one aspect though, in which once you've seen all the different ways in which people try to spam and cheat and break the rules, you can't unsee that. Like it's the black hat mindset. Like once you realize, Hey, here's a thing where people can recycle their conference badges my mind immediately goes to what if that's not the conference and then people have free conference badges that they can then use for their friends on the last two or three days of a conference like I, you literally can't look around the world and not think about how is somebody going to abuse that system right so now is, do you feel that people are like fundamentally evil no okay. <laughs> no I, so even it was funny whenever we were working with uh there's a lot of publishers and websites that do search engine optimization yeah. or seo and uh and there was a little bit of folks early on who were like oh that's all evil that's 100 percent. you're trying to manipulate things therefore bad therefore take action and there was a vp of engineering his name was wars who who really had the right approach he was like look these are small businesses they're trying to do the best they can to make sure that they rank well because they think they have some of the best services on the internet so we shouldn't begrudge them trying to rank well we should give them good things that they can do like make your site better you know make it faster make it easy to navigate and so that was that was really kind of a turning point where a lot of folks who might have been like antagonistic Mm. towards seo saw it more like this is energy which can be channeled in a positive way Mm. which i think is critical because you know folks are just trying to do the best thing for their business there's a few that are yeah, of course. Bad actors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for the most part, you know, people just want to know, give me the ground rules. Make sure that everybody's behaving consistently by that. If there's somebody I see violating the ground rules, can I tell you about that? And will you take action on that? And so trying to make sure that people know the right positive things to work on and the right negative things to avoid, Yeah, I think help diffuse a lot of the tension where, where it, it shouldn't be SEOs or websites versus google it should be or a search engine it should be working together to give the best results yeah that makes sense another thing that's interesting about your time at google was just how long it was <laughs> like i think the average tenure now is two years or less at a tech company uh, i don't know I, I yeah i stayed there for a month short of 17 years it's a good run yeah yeah. So how did you think about your work over that long, long period? Because you came right out of a PhD, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. didn't didn't finish. Yeah. Um, maybe someday. <laughs> my, my dad's like, you can still go back. I'm like, <laughs> totally. I don't think I'm going to go back, Dad. I'm good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um in the beginning, like you're, you're an IC, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how long was it before you're managing people? What, what did that whole progression look like? For yeah, you? I got to code for about five years okay. before they, like in 2004, 2005. Yeah. Um, okay. So worked on safe search, worked in the ads group, and then I was on quality, was on quality for the rest of my time at Google. And, uh, and it was funny because for, for a while I was like, spam's going to be an issue. And it was, 
it was not a popular opinion within Google. Yeah, uh, for a long time, people thought because Google, they thought the algorithm was so good. Yes, okay. they thought Google couldn't be spammed, um, and it was because I worked on Safe Search and I found a loophole that I was like, oh no, <laughs> oh oh, there's going to be a problem here. Yeah. So uh, like you use an example on the history of the, the internet podcast where like someone bought an expired domain, turned it into a porn site. Yes. Stuff like that. Exactly. And so after that, uh, you know, I remember having an argument with a very early employee of Google who was like, well, that's easy. You just solve expired domains and yeah. then you're done. Uh, but that doesn't take into account guest books and award programs and fake awards that you'd give just to get links to people and social engineering and da, 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 da. And so it was almost like you could see this thing coming down the horizon and everybody else was busy. They were working on other stuff. Google was great at the time, like back in 2000, it's, you'd have a hard time convincing people like there was ever going to be spammed. So there was some tension there for a little while and, uh, but eventually started working on spam. And after a little while longer, uh, again, this one great VP of engineering named Ors was like, he, he invited me to his office one day and he was like, Matt, bearing in mind that you can't say no. <laughs> how would you like to manage the web spam team? <laughs> and at the time I was just a, a lowly engineer. I was yeah. like, Oh, I guess I can't say no. Right. So I guess I'm a manager now. Um, is this that your managing tactic now for negotiations? No, that's such a bad tactic. <laughs> yeah. Cause if they realize they can be like, I, or I could go work somewhere else or I could just say right no. Now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it actually worked out because you, you become less productive, but you enable so many more people to become productive. Yeah. Uh, and so really kind of worked on it for the rest of my time at, at Google, being a manager and, and, and trying to guide and, and help people to, uh, you know, partner with them to figure out how to make the quality of the search results better. If you were thrown back into Google right now, how would you be thinking about deep fakes? Oh, man. So the idea that you can create a video which has somebody, you know, falsely superimposing someone else's picture is a super hard problem because like in theory, okay, you could do content aware hashes where you could say this video is extremely similar to this other video except for like these pixels. Um, but then people can like change the histogram and like add some noise and add a Chiron or something. So it's fundamentally a hard problem. I, I, in general, with web spam, the philosophy was do as much as you can with an algorithm, mm -hmm. catch the residual with, you know, manual spam people who are, you know, well trained and extremely good at being able to catch things and then use that as the training data for the next wave of mm -hmm. algorithms. Okay. Um, but fundamentally, like when you're synthesizing new content as opposed to just republishing old content, that's a lot harder to detect. Okay. It's a tricky one. So, yeah, that but, job is not over yet at Google. No. Yeah. And I think the main thing is just have policies. Yeah. Like if you have a good reason to believe that there's a deep fake, how do you how do you handle that process? Because I don't think you'll be able to completely automate the detection. But that's a problem already. Right. With yeah. like deplatforming, demonetizing yeah. or monetizing. Yeah. Right? It's the same issue. Totally. So after that quite amazing tenure at Google, <laughs> uh, what motivated you to join USDS? So it was interesting. I was in Nebraska at the time with yeah. my wife because I was working part time and, and my wife had said, why don't we do something fun? And I was like, okay, you get to pick what's next. Yeah. And, uh, and she's like, well, my family lives in Nebraska. Seems great. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, let's try that. Uh, and after like eight or nine months, I was like, Nebraska is wonderful. The people are really nice, 
but I also want to try something new for a little while. Did you go to the Berkshire meeting? I did. You did? I, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. You buy one share of Berkshire Hathaway, yeah. which you can buy for like 140 bucks. Yeah. And then you can go to this meeting and watch them grill, you know, Warren Buffett for eight hours. Like, and they also give you like free, you know, honey bun treats and yeah, yeah, all the Dairy Queen stuff. So, uh, so that was, that was a fun, like April, May kind totally. of thing to do. Um, but it was interesting because I saw a ton of people that I really respect going to DC to try to make a difference in government. Uh, and Mikey Dickerson, who was the first guy to run the U S digital service had come back to Google. He'd given a talk and talked about the impact that you could have. And so at that point, you know, I was like, all right, something interesting is going on here. I want to, I want to see what's going on. And had an amazing six months. Uh, the election happened mm-hmm. and they needed somebody who could sort of steward the U.S. digital service and make sure it would still be in good shape. Because the person in front of me was an appointed official. But Mikey was a political appointee. Yeah. And so they needed a sort of interim acting administrator. Okay. And so I was willing to fill in for you that role. Stepped up. Be the acting administrator. Well, and to be clear, like a bunch of people stepped up. Like, yes, you know, some folks left. Mm-hmm. But at this point... um, Something like 75% of the people who are in the U.S. Digital Service joined during the Trump administration because we've got this sort of two to four year tour of duty model. Mm. So we're not supposed to stay forever. Mm. We're supposed to come in, bring in skills from the tech industry, make systems work better inside government, and then and then head back out again. Yeah. And so a fair number of people, like I, there's about... 10% of USCS has been around longer than I have. So at some point I need to find the next person to, to yeah. yeah, hand the baton to. So so can you just, uh, everyone maybe has heard about it, but doesn't exactly know what you work on. Can yeah. you just like break it down? Absolutely. So the U S digital service started when healthcare.gov went down, caught on fire. The website was spinning shrapnel everywhere. They'd turn on CNN to see whether the website was back up or not. Uh, and it turns out like, um, a, you know, a bunch of w- contractors had done good work, but the integration points when things were supposed to connect were not really all that well tested. Mm-hmm. And so bringing in best practices like let's get everybody in a room, try to do a blameless postmortem, let's add monitor monitoring, you know, site reliability, engineering practices, those kinds of things. Like that was what allowed healthcare.gov to make it through the enrollment period. And so after that, people said, you know, we need more technologists in government. How many hundred million dollar boondoggles do you have where you spend a bunch of money, you spend three years writing the requirements, then four more years writing the tech. And by the time you're done, it doesn't work or it doesn't work as well as you expect it. And so the U.S. Digital Service is sometimes we're a little like a SWAT team. When a system goes down, you know, U.S. Transcom has a database that's down or something like that. We try to work with them and try to figure out how to get it back up. We also do discovery sprints where we'll come in for two weeks and we'll say, we think this is the problem. Mm. You might think this is the problem, but it turns out over here is the bigger constraint. Mm. And then we'll we'll do anything from months-long engagements to years-long engagements. So we've worked with um, USCIS, you know, to try to help immigrants become citizens faster, um, veterans affairs, trying to claim, you know, health benefits and everything like that. And so it's it's fascinating because you are a federal employee. But you come in for a limited tour of duty, anywhere from six months to two years to four years. Um, and then a lot of folks head back into industry, but a surprisingly large number of them say, it turns out I'm ruined for private industry. Like, yeah, once you have helped make a student loan wizard that literally helps your sister, yeah. you know, fix her student yeah. loan and be able to get a car and have a better life, like, you're like, why am I going to go work on Uber for dog walkers or how to deliver right. weed to people better, which is a, it's a fine I problem to work saying. on, but you're not, you're not saving the world if you're doing that. 
And so uh, a lot of people are like forming startups in civic tech. They're helping to build state digital services. They're, you know, doing consultancies um, all the way down to uh, some folks who decide to stay in government, which is really exciting because then you've got, you know, people with good emotional intelligence, hopefully good technical ability who can say that's not the way a computer works. <laughs> oh, dude, we're going to get to that. Okay. that that's like the, the whole Facebook hearing. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Um, but I'm curious about who makes up your team. Like, do mm-hmm. you have people like writing COBOL patches? Like, <laughs> how does it, what does it look like? We do have one guy who taught himself COBOL for fun. Really? Yeah, because there's a lot of COBOL in yeah, government. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like a bunch. And in fact, I could show you a picture of a, um, oh man, there's, I won't name the agency, but there's a room where they file bugs by printing out COBOL on paper and being like, the the room is sorted by line number. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's it's super scary. Um, but uh, so we're about one third engineers, one third designers, one third product managers. Okay. We also have people who are like procurement experts, you know, uh, who help decide how to buy things better. We've got an amazing talent team. Uh, you know, it's always good to have a lawyer to yeah. help you make sure you're not. <laughs> how you big know. is it? How many folks? We are about 180 people. Okay, cool. And. Uh, and it's fascinating because you've got everything from folks who, you know, have been in government and wanted to maximize the amount of bureaucracy that they could hack to, you know, folks who are like Facebook engineers. Uh, you know, we had a staff software engineer come from Google who she could only come for the summer, but we were like, come on down, you know, and, and let's see how much work we can get done. And it's really gratifying to see people do that. That's cool. So yeah, do you have a um a different kind of onboarding process given that you know the tour of duty is limited? Yeah. Okay. Most of the time if you want to join the federal government, you go to a site called usajobs.gov. Okay. Um we, you know, if you're interested in joining the US Digital <laughs> Service, go to usds.gov/apply. Um and and you can literally do it in 90 seconds. That's like cool. if your browser has autocomplete, it's like your name, address, you know, yeah. email address, that kind of stuff and a resume. So if you've got a resume ready, you just upload that guy. What happens then is, you know, if you're a designer, designers look at your resume. If you're a product manager, product managers look at your resume. We actually do one sort of technical interview that's like, okay, you know, how good of an engineer are you? Can you write some code? Um, And then if that goes well, then we'll do a follow-up technical interview and one emotional intelligence interview. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't want to hire jerks. Mm -hmm. It goes to a hiring committee that determines whether this person is minimally qualified. Okay. So it's, and then, we're always hiring. We have sort of this rolling. We're, it's not like we have batches. We're like the application phase is always open. And uh, and it's fascinating because like, you know, these folks could probably earn a little bit more money, although the government can pay up to $165,000 a year. That's not bad. So not a, not a no, horrible not salary. No. It's cheaper in D.C. than in San Francisco yeah. right now. Uh, and so it's we try to streamline the candidate experience and make sure it's not, you know, as governmenty as it as it often is yeah. when you're trying to join well, especially public after like yeah hiring at startups and knowing that what that experience is like yes very different yes let's go back to the facebook or yeah mm-hmm. the tech in government how are you guys thinking about educating people in government about how 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 the computers actually yeah. work yeah so you know there's jen palka at code for america which is an amazing nonprofit. uh i think has said and there's a lot of people who who use this phrase that government is who shows up and so there's a you know there's amazing amount of passionate people on capitol hill uh and throughout government but um i'll give you one stat hud housing and urban development 
has 8,000 plus employees. According to the statistics, the number of IT experts, like there's a job classification, 2210, blah, blah, blah. We'll just say IT people. The number of IT people under 30 at HUD is zero. So, you know, if you can get one good technical person to come in, it can make a huge difference. You can have a huge impact. And so, um, you know, a lot of the times you might have thousands of people on Capitol Hill, but, you know, they have to be experts on a bunch of stuff, farm bill and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And so technology is not necessarily their core expertise. And so getting some technologists who are willing to like come and say, you know, this particular product is actually snake oil, (laughs) Mm. you know, or we evaluated this and it looks great. You know, people are, even if it's just the process of selecting a contractor, like the dirty little secret is the government doesn't do as much work as the contractors who, you know, they, they, you know, bring on board to do stuff. And so if you get a bad contractor or if you don't know what good looks like, because they write agile, agile, agile all over the the request for procurement. Yeah, yeah, Scrum. We, we I'm a certified Scrum Master nine thousand or, or whatever it is. Which yeah. I'm sure there's great. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's some bad of my be best friends are Scrum Masters. Some master of my best friends are Scrum Masters. That's right. Um, but it is. <laughs> I'm going to start using that yeah. line if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, but it's also the case that like for one procurement, we said okay, instead of writing a pile of paper that says how good you are, why don't you submit some code to it? And work to us, and we're going to have engineers actually grade the quality of your code. And so, if you get better contractors, you get better results whenever mm. you know the finished work product is done. And have you figured out a way to give someone a feedback loop that's fast enough that makes them feel like they're having an impact? Because, like, all right, say, let's just say I'm like, I'm amazing. I'm a, the best software engineer at Google. I'm going to go join HUD. Am I not just going to be pushing a rock up a hill for my entire career? Okay, so. There are definitely days where you feel like in government you are pushing a rock up a yeah, hill. Yeah. Uh, we sometimes use the metaphor of paper cuts. Oh, you know? sure. Okay. And so, yeah. so it took us four years to get access to, to Slack, for example. Okay. Um, get permission to be able to use Slack, at least within our particular group. Um, but every so often you have those breakthrough days where you're like, oh, we actually convinced this person that this policy doesn't help people and actually hurts people. Um, or... Yeah, I, I could. I'm happy and the scale to, of the impact is large. It's huge. Yeah. Like if you can if you can shift the ship of state by one degree. Yeah, that's tens of thousands of veterans who are getting benefits, or tens of thousands of small businesses yeah. who are getting certified faster and more accurately. And so, yeah, there's hard days, but it is super deeply meaningful. Um, and if you absorb a few of the paper cuts, you make it a little bit easier for the next person. So like if by the time they show up, they can get a good laptop on day one that has access to some modern tools. They're like, oh, you know what? Working for government's not that bad. I'll take the next three paper cuts and then the person behind me will have an easier job. That's great. Yeah, I remember hearing that VA story about like you need to like downgrade your version of Acrobat to use this product. It's so sad. But so and I have to say like the one thing that I try to avoid and i've not done it well so far in this in this interview is giving more credit to our federal partners because like what you find is people who know the right answer or who are deeply dedicated committed passionate but for whatever reason don't always have the power to like get the right answer mm-hmm. to the right level mm-hmm. or or to push through some some regulation or or you know or 
overcome some resistance. And so if our goal is to come in and find those amazing people who are trying their darndest to try to make sure that the right thing happens and give a little bit of extra wind beneath their wings, like that's a fantastic model because yeah. it's not like we're not the world experts on, you know, how this part of government You're works. You're also 180 people. So it's like you couldn't. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's why, you know, just being able to find the, the leverage points where we can enable good things to happen and work with and collaborate with federal partners who are the true subject matter experts and the real like heroes okay. in the story. Like that's when things really go well. Okay. So sometimes you kind of like drop in and you're like a PM basically like making yeah. that happen. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. There are a bunch of questions for you from the internet. So we're going to just knock some out. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Michael Wang asks, how does USDS decide whether to outsource something to a private company or build the software in-house? Yeah, that's a great question because it kind of goes back to this last thing we talked about. Like fundamentally, that's going to be the federal partner that we work with that's making that decision. And so it's like, do you buy? Do you build? You know, can you use something open source or off the shelf, you know, you know, commercial technology and so it's it's rarely the case that u.s digital service is making that precise call it's more like we might do a discovery sprint dig into something for two weeks and be like you know what this off the shelf software as a service product will work just fine for the 90 percent case mm-hmm. and then sometimes it's like no you have to build your own grants management software but we'll help you find a good contractor or help vet them or or help make sure that the contract is written well yeah. those kinds of things uh and so you know if you can just buy something commercially or or repurpose some open source like great you should never not reinvent the wheel um but if if you've got a really unique need then us digital service is there to try to help figure out okay how do we how do we fill that with the minimum amount of work and and money cool all right next question spencer clark asks it would seem that the government is far behind private industries technology to what extent is this true and what can be done about it in addition to that how should we gauge the progress? <laughs> here we go. How should we gauge the progress of institutions like the USDS? That is such a good question. So um, I sometimes joke, and this is not a not intended to be a knock against again the amazing people who are trying their very best to make things happen in government. But I sometimes joke that government technology is frozen in 1995, and the reason that I pick that date is because bug bounties, which you know, or just an idea of like, if I find a security hole, I'm going to alert a company and the company mm-hmm. gives you money and says, thank you. Bug bounties were invented in 1995 by Netscape, which was a browser that came before <laughs> Firefox for those of you who weren't, who weren't Mark born Anderson. then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then the, the federal government had never done bug bounties before 2016. So the Defense Digital Service, which is an amazing group of individuals at the Pentagon, uh, ran something called Hack the Pentagon and later Hack the Army, Hack the Air Force, Hack the Marines. They've done a ton of bug bounties. And and it increases the security of our country in all kinds of different ways. It's cheaper, faster. You find more security holes. It's like, like bug bounties are a fantastic, like you look at your quiver of tools. It's a great tool. Mm Mm-hmm. So that bug bounties were not put into place until like 2016. Now the government is sort of thinking more about vulnerability disclosure policies, bug bounties, that kind of stuff. Now we're kind of at a phase where I've seen even just in the three years that I've been in government, a lot of folks like, okay, how do I move to the cloud? How do I make sure that it's secure? You know, so if you think Amazon Web Services was introduced in like 2006-ish, if you can in three-ish years go from 1995 to 2006, 
instead of it's going one year per year, you're doing like three years per year. So like if, if, and, and, and again, not to claim that that is all the work of the U.S. Digital Service because there's amazing groups. There's 18F, uh, which is a group in the General Services Administration. There's a ton of super leaning forward chief information officers, CIOs. So a whole bunch of people all collectively pushing the government means that, you know, if we're moving through bug bounties, through, you know, on-premises email onto people thinking about how do I move my, my stuff to the cloud? Mm-hmm. My gauge of progress is, hey, we're, we're only 13 years behind instead of, you know, 23 years behind. Yeah. And so, so that's pretty good progress from our standpoint. That seems awesome. And, and in, in particular, your progress, like how do you rank yourself there? Yeah. You know, I think the fact that we are, the U.S. Digital Service is still here. We're still working on projects that matter. We're hiring and uh, we're able to have an impact. For me, that's like if we've got good work to do. That's the primary, you know, measure of success that I care about. Okay, cool. Steven Sturgis asks, with GAN's uh, general adversarial networks getting more and more powerful, is the USDS thinking about the future of data authenticity? That is such a good question. And it makes me put my web spam hat on. Mm -hmm. So you can use a GAN to like make a fake person that doesn't actually exist. And so, you know, a picture of someone that looks completely real, but is just invented Mm -hmm. by a computer. Which is a huge problem for someone like Spam because you could astroturf comments and be like, I am Bob Smith and here's a picture that doesn't look like any other. You haven't just stolen someone else's picture. So it makes it harder to figure out, is this comment authentic and is this data authentic? Um, Luckily, the profit motive to Spam government, like there is some, but primarily the sorts of Spam that we've seen are things like fake comments, you know, on the FCC or, you know, various other places. The Wall Street Journal had a good article about that. So typically the U.S. digital service is more like we're implementers. You know, if there's a system or process that needs to be examined, we are happy to help. There's this amazing group called the Office of the Federal CIO, and they think more about policy. Okay. So, you know, what should the federal government data strategy look like? What should the federal federal cloud strategy look like? Those kinds of things. And so, um, you know, how much open data should should people have? And so I think all of those are hugely important. Data authenticity, at least as far as with people spamming or creating fake data, is a little bit outside the scope of the kinds of things that we typically see. Mm. Um, you know, as we do see more movement toward like data interoperability. So that might be a way where you could be like, okay, this seems like fake data because it's like two standard deviations out from what the typical stuff seems like. So you could do those kinds of things. But we haven't, honestly, the kinds of problems we run into at the U.S. Digital Service are more like, here's a paper process. Can we make it electronic? Here's an electronic process, but it sucks. Can we make it, you know, like private industry would do where you can do it on your phone and it's, you know, no, no obvious glitches. Yeah. Um, and there's so much work to be done just on that sort of non Before you hit bleeding stuff. edge GAN stuff. Totally. Yep. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Uh, all right. We have another Google question. So John Doherty asks, how difficult was it to communicate Google's algorithm changes and evolving SEO best practices without leaking new spam tactics? Oh, man. Good question from John. Uh, so it was it was interesting because it was I would go to search conferences and a lot of Googlers would go to search conferences and we would pick up, you know, what are people talking about uh, as far as black hat tips and tricks or like what are they talking about on search forums and stuff like that. 
So we got a lot out of that participation. We would learn and then we had to be careful about how we communicated. But at a very high level, uh, my goal, and I think a lot of how Google communicated, the goal was to say, look, here's where the puck is. Here's where the puck is going to be. Like move toward where the puck is going to be. Like make a site that works on, like we were saying, you need to have a mobile site, you know, way early before everybody realized mobile was going to be such a big thing. You need your site to be fast. Mm. You know, you need to think about, you know, do you, are you practicing, you know, good design, those sorts of things. And so, um, it usually wasn't that hard because you're like, look, most sites, if you do a site audit, there's things where you could just say, move toward this mountaintop yeah. and you'll be good. Uh, there were definitely a couple of signals or dimensions that I had to be careful about. Um, I talked to a, a partner at YC on, at Demo Day and they were sort of saying, I just have to be 100% honest because there's like 5,000 founders. I can't keep them all in mind. And so like, as, if you're honest, you don't, you don't keep track of what you're saying. Uh, so there might be times when I could... You know, I, I was, I was, I did my best to always be honest, but I, I might, you know, frame things in a way that's like, here's the positive way to talk about it and leave out, you know, and you could probably make some money in the short term doing it this way. Right. But it historically wasn't too bad. It wasn't that big of a deal. Okay. Um, Van Man <laughs> 0254. <laughs> totally, asked, a, totally yeah, a real person. Exactly. Totally <laughs> legit. I completely trust this comment. <laughs> Uh, how can smart tech folks better contribute to regulatory, regulatory and policy discussions in government? Mm, it's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening at the federal level, but there's also a lot of stuff happening at the state level and even down municipal city, county sort of stuff. So what I would say is, you know, show up, show mm. up to the city council meeting, show up to the, you know, the state legislator and say, I can help answer some policy questions. Uh, there's a guy who literally was like buying DVDs of the Virginia state legislature and their transcripts and like getting them turned into, you know, actual transcripts and then just making that available to more people. And so there's like all these grassroots ways to like encourage people to understand how government works. The other thing I would say is like smart tech folks, you should run for office. Like we need people who like we don't have that many computer scientists who are elected officials, especially at the federal level. So like it's not, you know, it it's hard, I'm sure. But like it's it is a thing that is possible to do. Right. Uh, and so um, especially at the state level or at the federal level, like you would be amazed how much of a difference it, it makes to just show up and be like, hey, I'm a resource. If you want to hear about X, Y or Z you know, I'm kind of the world expert on this part. So like, if you have questions about whatever, happy to help. Yeah. Cool. I mean, also not for nothing, there are a bunch of government tech startups that have gone through YC. Yeah. Uh, based in DC yeah. and in other places. Totally. So, there are, yeah. You can do this in a for-profit way. Yeah. With, yeah. There's, the government. And there's a whole new generation of contractors that are like, Hey, you know, we see a bunch of opportunities. So like, yes, you can go the nonprofit route. You can go into government. You can offer your resources to free, you know, you can be a consultant, but you can also form a company. Like people have started to on, on healthcare and there's so much, you know, redundant waste in there. There's like a decade's worth or a generation's worth of stuff to be done there. There's a bunch of stuff to be done in government as well. Yeah, so. totally. All right. Um, Ronak Shah asks, uh, well, they say, hi, Matt. Nice to hear you on the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's your best uh, pitch to high-performing startups in the Bay Area to adopt more of a human-centered design? 
Mm. Uh, says something that the government has been moving towards surprisingly well, but that fast-moving startups have neglected. Yeah, you know, there's this there's this myth that like the lore about Steve Jobs was always like, well, if I ask people what they want, you know, they'll tell me they want faster horses instead yeah, yeah. of cars or something. And so, yes, there is room for the occasional fifth standard deviation genius who's like, I know they think they want this, but they really need this, right. you know, an iPod or whatever. And, but most of us are not Steve Jobs. We're just not. <laughs> and so if you talk to users, you can only get so far off base. Like, it's amazing to me. You know, I, I went to a someplace recently and I was filling out the, you know, the register on the iPad in the lobby kind of thing. And they ask for an email address and, but they don't have like the at sign. You got to go hunt down and press shift, 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 you know, to find the at sign. And it's just like watching a user doing the journey map, seeing what the pain points are. Like people underestimate how important it is to be beloved, like just goodwill. Like one of the things that people love the most about Google was the logo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. that's not hard to do, but it's like, it's worth putting a few people on coming up with cool, fun Pac-Man logos. You don't think it contributes to your bottom line, but, but it kind of does. Like whenever Zuckerberg got testified and grilled in front of Congress, the market cap went down by like $129 billion in one day. And I always had a hard time at Google, you know, saying, okay, yes, we should talk to webmasters and publishers and SEOs, search engine optimizers, but how do you know how many people should be allocated to that. Like it should be at least one, right? Yeah. The first one helps, yeah. <laughs> but then you, you don't know how far you go until you get to diminishing returns. So we always had a hard time quantifying like what is the value of goodwill? Mm. And I think like losing $129 billion in market cap in, in one day is like one really good measure of goodwill about whether people like you or not. And so like, don't wait until the congressional hearings roll around. But this is a dangerous conversation, right? Because I think a lot of tech companies are like, oh, okay, how do I get out there more without mm -hmm. offending the other side, right? So they're just like wading through very carefully. It's like, oh, if I make, just to make it very simple, yeah. like if I make the right like me mm -hmm. by allowing, you know, gun videos and whatever, gun has whatever, the yeah. left will hate me. Yeah. So like, how do you do that? So I would say, yes, there's like 2% of issues that might be hyper-partisan and divide people and polarize people. But there's like 98% of issues that are like, I was literally trying to buy insurance the other day. And there were, I had two websites open. And the first website was like, okay, step one, we're going to need you to make a login. It's going to be this password, six to 30 characters, da, da 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 The second website was like, tell us your personal information. Tell us your credit card number. Which one do you think I gave my $400 worth of insurance money to? The second one that was like super easy and like no pain points. Yeah. And you could literally see like one was like 1980s style static websites. And the other one was like hero images, you know, and cool stuff. So, but design is not just what is pretty. Of course it's not. It is thinking about the user and how to make sure that they have a good experience. And I honestly think that is like a secret competitive advantage whenever you talk to 
you know, a random company and they think about, you know, what is my net promoter score? And oh, yes, yeah. you know, net promoter scores have their own issues. Yeah, but yeah. like if you're not thinking about how much your customers like you, you probably have a competitor who is thinking about that. Totally. It's an, I mean, it's a, so much that it's a cliche at YC, but we basically shove people out the door yeah. to go talk to their users. Yeah. And, and like you'll learn, and we see that with search engine optimization as well. If you talk to five users and say, what would you type to find this page? Or, you know, what would you here's your problem. How would you type it? Like you will be radically surprised by the kind of words they use. Hmm. You know, is it a USB drive, thumb drive, you know, USB disc, like this kind of stuff. So if if you've got a friend who's afraid to insert, you know, a USB drive into their computer, you know, you, you, you got to think about why are they afraid? What makes them afraid? What kind of words are they using? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on uh, the size of your data set? This is like a constant debate among some folks. I mean, I, I feel like the first nine or 10 people you talk to get you the biggest amount of value. Yeah. The team that we have at Veterans Affairs has literally talked to 5,000 veterans. Now, that's over a course of like four years, right? But I mean, we, we built one feature and it was, um, so if you've been discharged for like other than honorable reasons, so traumatic brain injury, PTSD, don't ask, don't tell, whatever, mm-hmm. it's really hard to get your paper upgraded because you have to like, it depends on the service. You might have to fill out a form. You might have to send it to VA or DOD, Veterans Affairs or Department of Defense. What does paper upgraded mean? So so that you can get an honorable discharge. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, so that you're eligible for health benefits and gotcha. all sorts of other stuff. And uh, And it was crazy because we launched it. People love it. And somebody was like, well, who told you to build this? Uh, you know, where does this fit into the, the software development lifecycle and the enterprise planning, you know, Funny. whatever. And the answer was the veterans told us to build this. Yeah. And so it took one person, her name was Natalie, by the way, taking the ball and pushing really hard. And she got this amazing group of folks who helped her. And, uh, and now that community of veterans has like a tool that they really want. And it is, it is amazing. Like, yep. The first 10 veterans you talk to are the most helpful, but the 5,000th will still help you make your product better. Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, one time I was at a post office in Japan and they had a bunch of different grade glasses tied to the stand where you filled it out. I was like, this is so perfect. Wow. I was like, you would never think about it until you see the 400th person like leave their glasses there. Yes. And you're like, oh, this is what they want right here. Yes. And it's crazy to me that like, there are some companies that people love. Yeah. You know, uh, Vanguard or TiVo or pick your favorite, right? Yeah. And typically they love them because they delighted them in some way. Or, or it can just be like a lot of people like Google because it's just like I show up, it's always up, I get the answers I need, it's fast, it is as relevant as I think humans can reasonably achieve or whatever, and then I leave. Yeah. And just the sheer like being able to deliver over deck, you know, two decades now a product that just works and then gets out of your way and doesn't annoy you, doesn't show pop-up ads or whatever, like that is a way to engender a lot of goodwill with people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just thoughtful is like, so it doesn't have to be cute yeah. for it to be thoughtful. Right. Against, it's whimsy is, you know, maybe it's good. optional, but yeah, yeah. But delight or just caring for the user is huge. Yeah. All right. Adam Hoffman asks, what are legislators, the government, and the general populace, populace most getting wrong in how they conceptualize the internet? Oh, man. That is such a good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer. I mean, most people are not at the level of like Ted Stevens was where he was like, the internet is just a series of tubes. You know, like people have a more sophisticated 
uh, conceptualization now. I, I think, you know, the internet is a huge, big place and you've got everything from great actors to bad actors. Um, a lot of the times, the kinds of times when people like want to pass a law or something to forbid something on the internet, you can just say like, well, what if somebody were doing it offline? Mm. How would you, how would you treat it? And a lot of the same metaphors apply. The other thing is like, you don't need to specify the specific mechanism. You don't need to say you can fax something because if you, if you bake into code or into law that this has to be faxed, that's going to affect things for the next 30 years until there's a new law that supersedes it. And so like baking in the idea of what you want, but not hard coding the specific technologies that are used are a little more likely to make something evergreen so that it's just like the data can be electronically transmitted. And then you don't care if it's via fax or chat or whatever mm-hmm. you or protocol buffers or JSON. Whatever it might know, be. Yeah, it does. You're not you don't you're not hard coding something to a specific technology. I think okay. that would that's probably the best I can offer on that one. Okay. <laughs> All right, it makes sense. Uh next question. Uh Rafael Ferreira asks, is it possible to live without Google? How do, I, I think there there are some interesting questions like beneath this though. Mm-hmm. Um so he says, How do you think Google affected people in searching for answers and content now that everything is just in one click? Mm-hmm. That's such a good question because, yeah, people lived without Google at least of up course. until 1998, <laughs> right? Then tens of thousands of years. Yeah. Um, but now I, I've been to a restaurant up in Toronto where uh, they literally have a little indentation where you both put your phone in and then you put the, the wooden thing it's on like the... like a Faraday cage yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, and it's like it tucks your phone away where you have to be present with the person. And it was hilarious because I went... Uh, to a dinner that was at that restaurant and like three or four times during dinner I was like oh well I can just look up you know when the Eiffel Tower was invented or whatever and then I, and but the food plate is sitting on the little you know phone holder and so you're not able to get to your phone um, but at the same time I do think that we're a little more like I feel like my attention span has gone down you know you got you don't have time for boredom anymore instead you just hop on Twitter when you have five minutes to waste, Twitter is a great way to waste 35 minutes, you know? <laughs> I, I see it oftentimes with friends. Like, I mean, I did it myself too. Like online dating as an example, mm-hmm. you you get in this like eternal optimization problem. Yeah. Um, oftentimes you don't think like, oh, I have to do a full loadout if I'm going to load something else in here. <laughs> right. Um, but, but you see people just like, oh, I can get someone who's like 10% more funny or like yeah. more attractive or something. Uh, Same with restaurants, right? Yeah. You're at this place like, ah, it could be better. Right. It could be a cooler phone holding thing. <laughs> 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 well, and it's strange to me that, um, you know, there's somebody who just wrote a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone in 30 Days. Oh, okay. So you start Are you by, still doing that, by the way? I It failed horribly. Oh, I tried okay. that as a 30-day challenge. I I still have my phone, so I clearly didn't break up that much. Uh, But just like I have been trying to spend a little more time being active on weekends instead of being on my computer all the time. I've actually lost like five pounds doing that. So I'm like, yeah, we could all step away and do a little forest bathing or, you know, that kind of thing as opposed to just like you spend three hours on the computer and then you're like, what did I actually accomplish? Yep. So, um, So I think this is kind of putting their finger right on the pulse, which is like, uh, maybe the pendulum will swing the other way. Maybe we'll be a little bit more mindful and like, okay, I will do this thing with the computer and then I'll put the computer away and talk to a friend or, you know, visit with somebody. Hopefully. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. How, yeah. <laughs> TBD. Meanwhile, all the dark patterns in the world and all the infinite scrolls. Indicate no way. Indicate no way. Yeah. They're, yeah. Hmm. 
I did use like Pi-hole to block most of my time wasting sites. Okay. So like I have to. Have like, you stuck to it? Do you like yeah. do you open the browser on your phone and then like, I cheat? I do. Yeah. So I like have to turn off Wi-Fi to mm-hmm. like be able to access Twitter now. But it you know it helps because then you're like you think at least for a second before you get back on there. I like grayscale. Grayscale yeah. makes your phone terrible. It's yeah. so boring. <laughs> you take a picture and you're like, I don't know if it's a good picture or not. Yeah. So <laughs> and also just taking time off. Like you know, I've gone away for like a week, been off offline. And it's shocking how quickly you can like batch process it all. Yeah. When, but then when you think about it, it's like, wait, I probably spent like 10 hours a week in email. Yeah. But then I just did a whole week of email in one hour. Yeah. Like, why am I refreshing <laughs> this constant? Anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, it feels like, you know, with the latest version of the iPhone and with the latest version of Android, like the pendulum starting to swing the other way, it like is. digital well-being, those yeah. sort of features. I, I think that's super cool. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Tim Woods asks, which job was more fun and why? Oh, that is that is not fair. Yeah. <laughs> that is, I love all my jobs. Uh, okay, so at Google, you know, you could get a haircut and oil change and do your laundry on site and, you know, see Colin Powell and like, yeah, I mean, crazy. It, it was a great place. Yeah. It was a ton of fun. The people were phenomenally talented. Um, so on a sheer superficial fun level, Google's pretty fun. Um, but I gotta say like working at the U S digital service, often hard, often difficult, often frustrating off the charts, meaningful. Like, you know, there's a lot of people who say happiness is not this hedonism kind of, did you enjoy your day and how much candy did you eat? Yeah. It's like, did you work on something that you're going to feel good about, you know, on your deathbed kind of stuff? Yeah. So they're radically different. And I, I would not have been able to do the job at the U.S. Digital Service without my time at Google. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. And uh, and there a ton of people work hard to make Google a fun place and a, and a you know, a, a great place to work. Um. But man, the people at the U.S. Digital Service are folks who are just uh, incredibly noble and will sacrifice and will wake up every day and try to sometimes push a rock up a hill. Mm-hmm. And a lot of days the rock just comes back down 90% of the way. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of perseverance and seeing people willing to do that in order to try to make services work better for the American public is it is super inspiring. Hmm. But it, fundamentally they're just different though like say all else equal in some like crazy alternate reality where uh google salary and usds salary equalizes do you think there would be a swing because i mean purpose is it's super important right you see like even these people who like go for early retirement like they need to do something you have to do something with your time yeah do you think more you think it's really like a salary difference that draws people yeah salary is part of it i've heard people say why on earth do you have to take a drug test which you do if you want to join the u.s jail service or why do i have to move to dc the summers there are hot and humid and they suck yeah all good feedback (laughs) i'm like if we can solve some of those problems we would solve those um i hear from a lot a lot of people who are looking for more mission and purpose right now yeah like if you think about you know the Me Too movement, you know, some of the stuff affecting the tech industry, like people don't always feel good to admit which company they're working for mm-hmm. now. Uh, or they don't feel good to say, yeah, I'm just making a little, you know, a little bit more money for this particular billionaire. Or I'm adding infinite scrolling so that people spend more time, you know, or in my game or my app or something yeah. like that. And so it is it is super interesting to me. If I go to a random conference like XOXO, which is a neat design conference, and I'm like, have you, you know, considered government service? 
the hit rate is incredibly high. Hmm. It might not be the right time for that person. They might want to, you know, work at a different level of government or, you know, they might have certain uh, political proclivities. But like a large fraction of people are hmm. like, no, that's that's on my list at some point. Maybe I need I was talking to somebody earlier today who was like, for right now, I need to earn a little more salary. But, you know, in two years or in four years, I would love to do this. To the point where they were like, let me come shadow you for a little while. That's cool. And yeah, so um, so it's really inspiring to see that, that a lot of folks are like, they, and if you think about it, there's folks who have student loans, you know, who are a veteran or their mom or dad is a veteran. Like almost everybody interacts with the government and almost everybody sees ways that those interactions could be better. Well, I mean, as I told you before we started recording, I just interacted with the USCIS. Yeah. And I have some opinions about the product. <laughs> right. Uh, and, so. okay, so a lot of folks are like, I, I am not the world's 10x best engineer. Can I still contribute something to government? And and as we were saying before you started recording, like, yeah. um, a lot of the stuff that we do at the US Digital Service is not rocket science. It's like, hey, show me the status of my claim online. So I know, do I need to wait two years for my disability claim or am I going to get helped in two months? And like, you know, adding a progress bar to see where you are in the process or making a form work on a phone. Like a lot of people have those skills. So yeah. if you're, if you're listening right now, like you can do, you know, like a, a six month tour, you can get a leave if you're at a big company for six months. And not have to, you know, give up all your stock options or stuff like that. That's what I did. I signed up for a six-month tour, yeah. and that was three years ago. <laughs> and so we do practice commitment escalation, full <laughs> disclosure. But it is also 100% the case that, like, you know, there is good work to be done. Yeah. And, at, you know, two-thirds of trust in government, according to McKinsey, so maybe take it with a grain of salt, and two-thirds. I'm always scared when yeah. they it's such a round nice number. But they say two-thirds of trust in government is driven by the interactions that you have with government. Hmm. So if you want people to trust government more and for it to function more effectively and efficiently and sort of regain trust in an important critical pillar of society, you know, consider a short tour. Nice. Okay, that's well, my pitch. I'll I, know, stop, I feel like but... we have to like wrap up on the plug. <laughs> we got a couple more. We're going to yeah. knock it out. We're good? Yeah, okay, of course. Cool. Um, okay, so uh, Snehan Ke- Kekri asks... What is Matt's view of the ongoing debate about backdooring encryption for uh, so-called, in quotes, uh, lawful <laughs> interception? Mm-hmm. So uh, fundamentally, I'm a technologist. I have a math degree. I have a computer science degree. I have mm-hmm. a master's in computer science. Uh, I have a PGP, you know, like I, I have done the public key encryption. And uh, my technical assessment is that, well, let me, let me start answering in a slightly different way. A lot of the value that the U.S. Digital Service does is not within a specific silo, but looking at the seams between silos. Hmm. Because maybe Department of Defense and Veterans Affairs don't talk to each other. And so it's when those service treatment records are transitioning from a from a service member to a veteran that things might get lost in translation or fall in between the cracks. And it's the same way with security. Like you can have a full frontal assault with a really great protected system that's, you know, really locked down. But if you have some little seam over here on the side, like a recovery method that's not two-factor authentication, that's actually just tied to your phone, then all somebody has to do is SIM swap and maybe socially engineer, a, you know, a customer support rep at, at pick your favorite carrier to maybe get access to your accounts and then drain your bank account or your, your blockchain wallet, whatever it is. 
So like it is often not the case that it's the primary system that gets cracked. The hackers don't care about how elegant it is. They just want to get in. Yeah, yeah. And so it's those seams where two systems join that things often, you know, where there's a problem. So as a technologist, uh, I do not support having a backdoor in encryption. At the same time, that's my personal opinion. That's my personal technical assessment. Uh, but I'm also a government employee. And so there's processes in which you know, uh, people participate in making policy decisions. So if I'm looped in, that's going to be my point of view. You shouldn't have backdoors because it represents a vulnerability where bad actors and criminals and all sorts of folks and other nation state governments would totally attack it. Um, but I also abide by whatever policy processes are run. So I say my best, I try to convince people of what I think. Uh, but then when the policy decision gets made, you know, that's the policy decision yeah, and that's what the party line. Is. Yeah. Um, has anyone asked you about breaking up tech companies? <laughs> uh, only in a personal capacity. Okay. Uh, no, yeah. Although I will say, so unexpected plug, the federal trade commission, <laughs> turn right into the camera. <laughs> the federal trade commission is looking for a technology sort of coordinator, oh, cool. um, who can basically bridge between two worlds and translate government to technology and back and look at, you know, uh, you know, if, if a technology company is doing a, B or C, you know, why are the potential reasons for that? You know, what is the business model and, and why would they structure things that way? So if, if that's an area of interest to you, the FTC has an open application. I think I've tweeted about it recently. I'll try to retweet about it. Um, and so that's a super interesting position where you, you, you could go in and just like I talked about, you know, mm. having my opinions about encryption and how that might or might not affect policy. Uh, you could go in and say, here, here's my take FTC on, you know, this small company or this big company or this technology practice. Um, and it's not necessarily an engineering kind of position. It might be like a product manager, mm. you know, because those are the sorts of folks who often translate between the different worlds. Okay. Um, so there's a bunch of places in government to slot in. There's also a group called Tech Congress that tries to bring technology people into Congress as staffers so that you can help translate policy and say, here's a good idea, here's a bad idea, you know, be a sounding board for people within Congress. And so there's a bunch of ways to participate in those kinds of discussions that's awesome all right last time what's a website if someone wants a job <laughs> <laughs> if you would like a job please go to usds.gov apply we will have actual people looking at your resumes we could use engineers product managers designers a lawyer recruiters like if if you are a person who can get to yes and you're a good bureaucracy hacker uh we would love to talk to you yeah cool thanks matt thanks so much for having me all right, thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.